Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you will be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and of righteousness. He turned many from inequity. For the lips of a priest should guard the knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have cursed or caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The Father Heart of God is our current teaching series. We're working our way through the book of Malachi. This weekend's message is titled, Listen to Him. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Malachi chapter 2. We'll be looking at those verses in more depth. This last week, Nancy called me on the phone and greeted me with one word, hey. And I said, who is this? And she said, it's your wife, Nancy. I said, Nancy who? And she said, you know, Nancy Davis, your wife. We've been married for 42 years. You remember me, don't you? How many are thinking that conversation actually didn't happen? Is anybody there? Why why would you think that? Why would you think that? Because uh, after 42 years together, I can easily recognize her voice. All she needs to say is one word on the phone. Hey, I know it's her. I know it's her. Jesus calls us into a similarly close relationship with him where we instantly recognize his voice. I mean, do you know how great that is? (laughs) That is amazing that the God of the galaxies invites us into a relationship with him that involves a dialogue, a giving and receiving of truth and love. John 8, 47, this is on your notes there, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They hear my voice. This is Jesus speaking. They hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. If you haven't been with us through this series thus far, 
as it relates to the book of Malachi, God's people have, have returned to the promised land from Babylonian captivity. They were all excited. They rebuilt the temple, the walls surrounding the city. But in all of that excitement, their experience came way below their expectations. And you know that gap between our experience and our expectations is called disillusionment, despondency. It's... it's uh, we, we become overwhelmed with disappointment. And so as we've learned thus far in this series, that unresolved disillusionment, we are, we're all going to experience it. We've got to resolve it. We've got to work through it. Unresolved disillusionment can lead to spiritual apathy, bitterness, and cynicism. That's where these folks are. So Malachi is calling the people back to the covenant love of God. Six times he uses that word covenant in this book. And so the basic theme is, as we started two weeks ago, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, it would change everything. You would love him, that was week one. You would worship him, that was week two, that was last weekend. And this week we're looking at you would listen to him. Now, three questions I believe this text answers for us. What does it mean to listen to God? What happens when we don't? What happens when we do? That's where we're headed. Let's dive right in. Let's take that first one. What does it mean to listen to God? Look at verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. Just, let's just take that phrase there. So he's speaking specifically to the priests, but generally to all the people. Why the priests first? We talked about it last week. It's because they're the ones that are to lead the way. And so he's addressing the, the, the priest. And uh, lest you think this is not for you, not, this is just for leaders, let me prove that otherwise. He tells us in verse 7 of this text what the role of a priest is. A priest is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. That would be us. We're to be messengers of the Lord of hosts. They represent the people to God and God to the people. That's what we're supposed to do also, is to help people to connect with God. Hebrews 4.14 tells us this, that Jesus is the true and better high priest that all the Old Testament priests were pointing to. So he's the fulfillment of that Old Testament priesthood. So it all pointed to him. But it also tells us um, in 1 Peter 2.9, speaking of our identity as believers, if we've put our faith in Christ, that but you are, this is our identity, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There it is. A royal priesthood. A holy nation of people for his own possession. So we are a royal priesthood or a holy uh, priesthood. He said royal, but we are a chosen people, a holy nation. So a royal priesthood. Think about that just for a moment. Priesthood. What is a priesthood? It's called the priesthood of the believer. You can connect with God personally through Jesus Christ. That's what that means. When you talk about, I, I went to a church a number of years ago where the pastor basically said, no, you, you almost have to go through me to, to know what God's saying to you. And I'm thinking, no, 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 I believe in the, the royal priesthood. I believe that in the priesthood of the believer. And he didn't quite understand that, but I said, no, I can hear from God myself. I can interact with him because of what Christ has done being the, the ultimate high priest. And that's important to, to always keep in mind. And so this is for all of us. I said all of that to say this is for all of us. We're a royal priesthood. 
We need to listen up. And this is what he says, verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. And then he's going to spell out what happens when we don't listen to God. We'll look at that in just a moment. But let's first of all, I'm going to spend probably most of my time on this first part of answering the question, what does it mean to listen to God? Your first fill in the blank there would be listen to God. You see that in verse 2. So he says, listen to God, take it to heart, honor my name. He's telling us what that means to listen to God. So listen to God. Matthew 4, 4, maybe many of you are familiar with this verse where Jesus is being tempted and, one, and each, with each temptation he quoted scripture and, um, and he's being tempted by Satan to turn a rock into bread and then Jesus responds by saying, anybody know? Man cannot live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's good that you take care of your life physically. We're very conscientious with our physical part of us, and that's really important, but not near as important as our spiritual well-being. And what he's saying here is that you can't survive or thrive spiritually without regular and consistent interaction, conversation, communication, communion with God personally. You need that. You can't survive. You won't be able to thrive in the Christian life, apart from hearing from him, interacting with him, mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. This is what I love most about the Christian life. It's intimacy with God. And I believe intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. There's nothing better. And, and so the only way that we can have that intimacy with God is through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So if you want to have interaction with God, you've got to go through Jesus. In fact, Jesus even said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So what does that mean to be born again? You need to be made alive spiritually so that you can have that relationship with God. You can know that. Know God. Know the living God. You can experience him in your life. And the only way that you can be born again is you need to hear the gospel proclaimed and then you need to respond to it and, and say yes to Jesus and open your heart to him and repent and believe in him. And, and then it takes you instantaneously into this intimate relationship with God. Of course, that different levels of intimacy, but it takes you right in where you can begin to interact with God and know the love of God. And so it's really important to understand the gospel the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself. Now, why did we need reconciliation? <clears throat> because in, John, in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death means separation. When you, when you die, your soul separates from your body. He's saying, you're separated from God because of your sin. And there's nothing we can do to bridge the gap, but Jesus did that for us. And now we have been reconciled. So the good news, by the way, it's the best news I've ever heard. It's absolutely out of this world. And, um, and so it's good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. Oh my goodness sakes, that's incredible. 
And so that, that brings us into this relationship with God where we can listen to him. Now we need to ask the question, well, how does he speak? How does God speak? Well, he speaks through the word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God, the providence of God, and the wisdom of God. That's all on your notes, by the way. And, uh, and so the word of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, you can look these verses up on your own, kind of go into it in more detail, but all scriptures God breathed. God's word is, when we pick up God's word, all 66 books, the very words from the mouth of God, the word of God, so he speaks to us through the word of God, he speaks to us through the, the spirit of God. So when we make a confession of faith in Christ, we repent and believe in him, immediately we have the Holy Spirit that comes to live within us. Tells us that in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, In John 16, 13 through 14, it tells us the work of the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he conveys, he compels, he captivates, he convicts, and he comforts us through ideas, thoughts, impressions. So he begins to speak to our hearts in various ways. And then we've got the people of God. So that's, so you've got the word of God, the spirit of God. Oh, by the way, let me just say a little bit more about the spirit of God. Typically, it's making, it's, the Holy Spirit is, is glorifying Christ, making him more real to us more than anything. And that's what it actually tells us in 1614. He glorifies Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done for us. And that becomes more real to you. So you got the word of God, the spirit of God. Then you got the people of God. Proverbs 15:22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. So let me ask you this. Do you have people in your life that you can bounce things off of? Hey, you think, I think God's been speaking to me like this. What do you think? And they can either affirm it or say, that's not God. That's you, okay? Or they can, they can say, no, that sounds more like the adversary. Sounds like he's speaking to you. But you need to have that. You need to have people in your life where you're interacting with regularly to affirm uh, that you are truly hearing from God. By the way, when you isolate yourself, you guys know this. And there's a lot of people that do that, even Christians. When you isolate yourself, you get weird. <laughs> you do. He, it's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2. Made that very clear. You need that interaction. You need counselors in your life. I will bet you that you would have avoided some of the problems that you've had in your life if you had had counselors in your life, people speaking into your life. And, and so, so you got the word of God, the spirit of God, you got the people of God, then you got the providence of God. What is providence of God? Providence of God is, is that he's working all things for our good and his glory, Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so even in the darkest times, he's working. Even in the best of times, he's working. In all times, he's working. He's working in your life right now, whether you can see him or not. That's the providential hand of God. That happens through open and closed doors. And, and difficulties and problems and pleasures and all of these things, he's working. And by the way, in his providence, he always has your best interest at heart. He's never holding out on you. He's always wanting your good. And that's what he's working towards. 
And I love what uh, C.S. Lewis said. He whispers, God whispers to us in our pleasure and shouts to us in our pain. And then there's the wisdom of God. So you got the word of God, the spirit of God, people of God, providence of God. You got the, the wisdom of God. This is often kind of the list that I go through when people are asking me, well, how can I hear God or how do I know God's will for my life? Right here, this is it. This is, this is the framework by which you discover that. And the wisdom of God, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it makes this contrast in the book of Proverbs between you're either on the path of folly or the path of wisdom. And you need to make uh, decisions and, uh, consistent with wisdom. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. It's competency in life's realities. Because there's issues in the Bible that it doesn't specifically address, and God wants you to use wisdom. He wants you to be smart. And uh, part of that wisdom is just learning from experience. How many would say that it's really, really, it's really, really a good thing to, to learn from your own life experiences, especially bad experiences, so you don't repeat those bad experiences? Show of hands. Is that true? Yep, yep, yep. How many would say that it, it is even, even better to learn from other people's experiences? <laughs> You guys agree with that? Okay. So that's why you need to be in interaction with others. You can hear their story and you go, oh, I'm not going to do that. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to totally avoid that. And so that's why you need the input of others. You need to hang out with others. And that's wisdom. Wisdom means that if you decide you're going to move your family somewhere, you're going to do a little research about the job and the company and the, and the environment and and if there's any school, uh, schools around there, what kind of schools are around there for your kids? And, and churches, are there any churches in the area? I have, we have people regularly leave Desert Breeze and they'll move on the other side of the valley thinking that they're going to continue to travel because they found a cheaper home over there only to go over there and not be able to find a church and struggle with that and they end up crashing and burning. I don't know how many times I've seen couples do that or they move to a different city or another state and the last thing on their mind is church. So the wisdom of God would say, no, 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 that my spiritual well-being is really important. I need to find out if there's any really good churches in that area that I can attend and I can be a part of. That's, that's really important. That's the wisdom of God. And uh, so word of God, spirit of God, people of God, providence of God, wisdom of God, Wisdom of God. God never says anything to our hearts that's contrary to what is already revealed in the Bible. Did you guys hear that? So everything has to be, you got to take it right back to the scripture. Is this biblical? Here's another thought too, is that something is severely wrong when the words we hear outside of scripture, from my background, they were called signs and wonders. So let me say that again. Something is severely wrong when the words we hear outside of Scripture, signs and wonders, are more engaging and energizing than the inspired Word of God. I mean, think about this, what we have. Words from the very mouth of God when we open this up. Hebrews 4 says that it is active it is alive and active, which means the very presence of God as we study God's word. That's why we have a very high value of God's word here. That's why we read it the way we do, the way we study it. I had a guy last night say, you guys, uh, I've, I've been to a number of churches and you guys actually study the Bible. 
I'm thinking, yeah, of course. That's what we do. That's what Christians do. But it's, it's, it's crazy how times have changed, even in many churches. And most people are oblivious to it. They don't even know. Oh, it was inspiring. It was good. It's, are they studying God's word? God speaks to us. We can interact with him. And believe me, I need his word every day. And so do you. Because you are just as messed up as I am, okay? Yeah, and so you need his word. Now, you might not think you do, but you do. You do. You're out of touch with reality. We need his word. I'm in this book every day. I can't stay away from it. I love his word. I love intimacy with God. It's my favorite, and he speaks to me regularly. I couldn't live without him speaking. So man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you cannot survive, you cannot thrive spiritually unless you're interacting with God and having a relationship with him primarily through, through his word. And so the next one is take it to heart. So we talking about listen to God, how we listen to God, how he speaks to us, but take it to heart, take it to heart. The heart, the word heart is used uh, 900 times in the Bible, 900 times, so that means it's probably really important, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's really important. And so uh, Matthew 6.21 says this, it says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. I think we've got a heart chart uh, up there I want you to take a look at. So when the Bible's talking about the heart, this is what it's actually talking about. Where your treasure is, that's that verse, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. What is your heart? Your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. So what you treasure will dominate your thoughts, stir your emotions, your deepest emotions and move you to action. It's how we function. This is how our heart works. So where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So what does that mean to treasure? Uh, Job 23, 12 is a verse we talked about last week. Job says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. So it's more important that I hear from him than I eat. I will do without eating if I, until I hear from him. I had a pastor friend that actually said that. He wouldn't eat until he had heard from God first thing in the morning. And um, that, was, that was his verse. He just loved God's word. So when I treasure something, I longingly look at it, think about how great it is. I ponder its virtues until that truth descends from my mind and stirs my emotions and moves me to action. We talked about it last week. The inner essence of worship is right thinking of God, that's truth, and right valuing of his supreme worth. Worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 23 and 24. Uh, Proverbs 4, 23 is another great verse. So not only are we to treasure God's word, so what does that mean to take it to heart? We gotta treasure it above anything else. But we also have to guard our hearts because it tells us in 4.23 of Proverbs, he says this, above all else, guard your heart. That's above all else? Yes. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. 
What does that mean, wellspring? Well, it determines the course of your life. You don't like the course of your life? What do you got to change? If you don't like your actions, your feelings, your thoughts, it's not behavioral modification. Behavioral modification would focus on those top three. It's dealing with what you treasure, what's most important to you in your life. You deal with your treasure. It's not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart that bring about life change. So you're dealing with your treasure. And that begins to change your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. So treasure is to fill your heart with the beauty and the value of something. All of us do that. Everybody on this planet fills their heart regularly. Everyone has a treasure. Everyone is living for something. Everyone is looking to someone or something for their meaning, hope, and happiness. Everybody. Every one of us. And um, oftentimes it's, it's, we say this, uh, we say this to ourselves either consciously or subconsciously, if I had that, you can fill in the blank, if I had that, my life would have meaning, hope, and happiness. I would feel content. What is the that? Well, I've heard people, I've heard Christians say, if I could just get a date. I've heard people say that. Or if I could just, if we could just get married, if I could just get married, if we could just have kids, or if we could just get rid of these kids. Uh, I haven't heard that, okay. Yeah, I have, okay. I've even said that, okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, whatever it is. If I could just land that job, if I could just get that education, and what they've done is misplaced their meaning, hope, and happiness in something that's temporary as opposed to eternal. And um, see, there's a major difference between, um, between sorrow and despair. Before I talk about that, let me just give you some really quick uh, um, parenting advice as it relates to this heart chart. Um, the goal of parenting isn't children who obey. That's not the goal of parenting but children who obey out of a love for God. In other words, you're gonna to wanna to work on their treasure, what's most important to them. And you wanna talk a lot about Christ and what motivates us. It's because he bled and died for us. He gave us fullness of life and therefore it changes the way we respond. And so you wanna work on their hearts, not just behavioral modification, it's heart transformation, and it's supernatural. You've got to pray like crazy that, that your kids will get the gospel deep in their heart and it will transform their life, and they will respond with, uh, with repentance and faith in him. So there's a difference between sorrow and despair. Let me just kind of walk you through this. This is kind of a diagnostic thing. Sorrow happens when you lose a good thing. We lose good things in life. We're sorrowful. But despair happens when that good thing, whatever it is, has become an ultimate thing in our life. And it causes that despair. And I know that we all have well-meaning friends and Christians that maybe come along and they see that we're, we've got this despondency, we've got this despair happening in, the, in our lives. Maybe, maybe you, you lose a job or you go through a divorce or you have chronic marriage problems or your children aren't responding to your discipline or there's a financial crisis or there's a health crisis diagnosed with stage four cancer, whatever it might be. The moralist 
would come along and say, stop sinning, get over it, move on. What are they focusing on? They're focusing on the actions. That doesn't go deep enough. The relativist would say, you just need a lot of love and acceptance. What are they focusing on? They're focusing on the feelings. Still doesn't go deep enough. The pragmatist would say, you need to think more positive thoughts. That's on the thoughts. That still doesn't go deep enough in dealing with your issues and problems. And so the gospel would say, something in your life has become more important to you than God. It has become your treasure. That's why you have despair. Now, let me just say that you're going to have despair in your life. And especially when you go through horribly tragic situations. And it's going to take you a while to get through that. But if you don't get through that despair and come back to a place of just, yeah, you're sorrow, but you can move on from that, then, then you have idolatry going on in your life. You have substituted God with whatever it is that you have just lost, and your life is devastated as a result of that. That's the difference between sorrow and despair. We need to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing in the midst of that. Because we, we grieve, the Bible says, but not as the world grieves, because we have what? We have hope. We have hope. So we're sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Second Corinthians six ten. That's what Paul said. And yet from time to time we move into that area of despair. And so we come back to God's word to, to recalibrate our hearts and to, to reorder our loves and to reestablish how we should be thinking, feeling, and behaving in response to our circumstances. So, I mean, this, this is so important to just dealing with life. It's not the circumstances that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave, the way you think, feel, and behave. It's actually your treasure. It's what you're saying to yourself about your circumstances and what you treasure. It's your interpretive grid that comes from your treasure that either makes you or breaks you in with the difficulties of life. So how do you know you are listening to God and taking it to heart? I did tell you that we were going to spend a lot of time on the front end. Okay. How do you know that you are listening to God and taking it to heart? Here's some diagnostic questions. Let me just see if this is happening in your life. How real has God been to your heart this week? How clear and vivid is, is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? To what degree is that real to you right now? Are you having any particular seasons of delight in God? Do you really sense his presence in your life and sense him giving you his love? Have you been finding scripture to be alive and active instead of just being a book? Do you feel like scripture is coming after you? Like it's speaking to you, it convicts you, but it also comforts you. Are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? Are you finding God challenging you or calling you to do something through his word? Are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now you have more now than you have in the past? Are you conscious of a growing sense of the evil of your heart 
and in response, a growing dependence on and grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God. Is that happening in your life? Do you have that level of intimacy with God? See, that's what it means to take it to heart, that you are encountering God, you know God, you're walking with God, you're enjoying God, you're experiencing God in your life. Listen to him, take it to heart, and then the natural outcome of that will be you're going to honor his name. That's the third one. You're going to honor his name. So let's complete the verse, 1 Peter 2, 9. Remember he said that we are a royal priesthood. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love that verse. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we are to do what? We are to proclaim the excellencies of him. I love the descriptive language. Oh my goodness, you need to know him. You need to know him. That's what we, want us, that's what we would share with others. We are so filled up with him. We're interacting with him. We're walking with him. We know him. And it becomes an overflow of our life. We honor his name. Five, uh, Matthew 5, 16, uh, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So right valuing of his supreme worth is finding him more glorious, beautiful, desirable, satisfying than anyone or anything in this world. God becomes your highest treasure, your deepest pleasure. You find pleasure in him unlike anything else. That's what it means, and that's how we honor him. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Magnify. We are to magnify the Lord, not like a microscope, but a telescope. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the difference between a microscope and a telescope. Real quick, do that. So a microscope does what? It makes a small thing look bigger than it is. You guys agree with that? Okay, not all of you agree with that. Okay, we got some problems here. Okay, yeah, it makes, it makes a small thing look bigger than it is. A telescope makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. We are to magnify God not as a microscope but as a telescope. The whole duty and delight of the Christian is to think, feel, and behave in such a way that you will make God look as great as he really is. And boy, is that a blast. That's a way to live. That's that fullness of life. You can't magnify what you haven't seen or what you quickly forget. And what's fascinating about this is that there's no conflict between God's honor and our happiness. They're not competing. And in fact, his honor shines brightest when we are happiest in him. And so that just becomes the overflow of our life, of walking with him and knowing him and loving him and enjoying him and being with him. And so what does it mean to listen to God? It means to listen to him. We went through the specifics of that. Take it to heart, honor his name. Okay, so what happens when we don't? That's the next question. Okay, this is where we'll pick up the pace just a a bit more. 
Look at verses two through three. Did you notice when we read through that? There's some pretty awful stuff that he says. Yeah. Then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. Did you notice that when we read that the first time? Okay. What were you thinking? Oh, boy. Okay. I've heard of having egg on your face. I've had food on my clothes for people to point out. I had something on my head this morning that uh, someone pointed out. Said, you got something right here. I go, oh, what is that? Oh, Phil, whatever. I've had all of that happen, but I've never had dung on my face, okay? We used to play in a little cow pasture out there, but I was very careful to stay away from any of the cow pies that were out there. That's a little gross. But, uh, but that's, it's interesting. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. They, they had been putting dung in the face of, of God through their sacrifices. It's an analogy is what it is. Because of their half-hearted worship, Malachi 1, 6-14, we talked about it last week. Therefore, God was saying that if you will not listen, they will have dung on their faces, which means to me, it's just you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be ashamed. I mean, think about this. If anything, if anything captures your heart and imagination more than God, I've said this many times before, if anything captures your, your imagination, your heart, your imagination, your love more than God, then it will control you. Here's the curse. It will control you when you seek it. It will disappoint you when you get it because it will never be enough. And it will devastate you when you lose it because you've built your whole life on sand. It's a sandcastle. And you're going to have dung on your face, is what he's saying. You're going to be embarrassed. It's not going to work. That's a curse. He goes on. He gives us um, some more insight. Malachi gives us more definition to, to curse in verses 8 through 9. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people in as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Here's your next fill in the blank. If God is the source, and here's my rationale as I was walking through this, if God is the source of all love, life, and liberty, then to not listen to him will naturally bring a curse. You're going to be absent of love, life, and liberty. You're not going to have that working in your life. And that's found in our text, verse 2 and 8. Genesis 3, remember what went down in Genesis 3? It's a perfect picture of, of this, of what, what we are experiencing on this planet today. It's, it's the fall. So creation, and then chapter 3, it's the fall. And what happened with the fall? Well, we thought we were smarter than God. Adam and Eve said, we're smarter than God. God's holding out on us. We're going to be happier by disobeying him, which is insane. But often people believe that. And, and so we turn away from God, and that spiritual alienation immediately brings psychological alienation. If he's the source of all life, love, and liberty, guess what? We're lacking life, love, and liberty inside of us. There's a vacuum, 
And therefore, we become very selfish and self-centered. Would you say that American culture and the people in American culture are pretty self-centered and selfish? It's because they're empty of glory. It's called conceit. Because we've turned away from God, the very source of life, liberty, and, and, and all that we would ever want in our lives. And therefore, it leaves us empty and it creates this psychological alienation because we were meant to look into the eyes of our, of our creator and to receive all the acceptance, security, and significance we would ever need. And then out of that fullness, live our lives and, and bring fullness to others sociologically. But because there was a breakdown spiritually, there was a spiritual alienation brought psychological alienation, which brought social alienation. Because if I'm empty on the inside, then everything becomes a means to an end for me. My marriage becomes a means to an end. My kids become a means to an end. My job becomes a means to an end. Rather than operating out of abundance, I'm operating out of deficit and neediness. And then, of course, there's the phys physical alienation, the consequences of all of that with the pain and the suffering and the difficulties that we have on, that, on this planet Earth. That's the curse. That's the curse. And in fact... Even our blessings are cursed because they can never give us what only God can give us. Even our blessings are cursed. That's your next couple fill in the blanks. That's found in verse 2 and 8. It's where I got that idea from in our text. How many are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes? Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, so Solomon, did he have everything? Yep, Everything. And yet what he says uh, throughout that book, it's all meaningless under the sun. In other words, apart from God, life is meaningless. In other words, what he was saying is that there is an inconsolable longing within all of us that nothing in creation can ever satisfy. Only the creator can satisfy. That's ultimately what he's saying. Romans 8, 20 through 21, God subjected creation to futility in hope it would bring us back to him. Now, this is what you need to keep in mind is that people who reject God can maintain the illusion life is good without God because in his kindness, he hasn't withdrawn all of his gifts. It's called common grace. Matthew 5.45 says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Those whose main happiness is found in this world are living on borrowed time. So if you're building all of your identity on your marriage or your kids or your job or what kind of car you drive or the house you live in, you're living on borrowed time. It's a sandcastle. It's chaff in the wind. Psalm 1. And the sandcastle is what Jesus, what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. You're living on borrowed time. All of us have an inconsolable human longing that only God can satisfy. Only God can satisfy. Here's the next thought on your notes. We can't give what we don't have, and therefore we can't take people beyond where we are. So if we're cursed, we're spiritually alienated, we have a psychological alienation, we can't help others. We really can't help others. We, can, uh, we can't give what we don't have, and therefore we can't take people beyond where we are. So he said in verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Did you notice that in the text? I will rebuke your offspring? 
What does that mean? You're going to pass on a broken baton to your kids. If you're not walking with me, if you're not excited about me, if you're not living your life for me, you're going to pass that on to your kids. If you're excited about Jesus, your kids will be excited about Jesus. That's what he's saying. Verse 9, he says, you have cursed many You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You're not going to be able to give wise counsel. If you're not interacting with God regularly, you can't give wise counsel. And you can't help people. Luke 6.40, it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will become like his teacher. Christianity is one generation away from extinction. Scott gave all of us elders... Uh, it's from, it's called Pew Research Center, and it was uh, released October 17th, 2019, not too, too long ago. And it says on the front page, it says, in U.S., decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. So let me give you just one little stat here, and we'll do a quick survey here in the room. And I'll, I'll mention your generation, and you can raise your hand with each of the generations. And so what it says here is it says uh, there's a large generation gap in American religion. In 2018 and 2019, the percentage of U.S. adults who identified as Christians. Let's take, first of all, the silent generation, born between 1928 and 45. Who's of this generation in here? Okay, okay. Excellent. 85% claim to be Christian of that generation, 85%. And then the next generation would be the baby boomers, 1946 to 64. How many baby boomers? Baby boomers, baby boomers. Okay, there's a bunch of us. It drops from 84% to 76%. 76% of baby boomers identify as Christians. And then now we've got the Generation X, which is 1965 to 80. 1980, 1965 to 80. And this is Generation X. Generation X, let me see you. Okay, Generation X, Generation X. Okay, I see you. Okay, it goes from 84%, 76% to 67% of Generation Xers identify as Christians. Now the millennials... That would be the rest of you, huh? Unless you didn't raise your hand, okay? So millennials, 1981 to 96. 1981 to 96. How many? Millennials. Oh, yeah, look at this. Woo! I love it. I love it. And so that goes from 84, 76, 67, 49. When my wife heard that last night, she cried. He goes, we're not reaching that generation. And what I've learned through the years as a pastor is that losing the gospel doesn't happen all at once. It's more like a four-generation process. It works like this. One generation accepts the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. By the way, that's happening in a lot of American churches right now. 
You can go to those churches and you will not hear the gospel except for on Easter or Christmas. I talked with a guy that just not too far from here. It's a mega church. They do not present the gospel regularly to their folks. They're assuming the gospel. And assuming the gospel leads to the third generation. Generation confuses the gospel. Fourth generation totally loses the gospel. That's what we're passing on. And uh, it breaks my heart. And so this happens when the gospel is not central to the life of the church or the individual Christians. So is the gospel central to us as a church? Yes, I believe it is. Is it to you? Because that's what you're going to pass on to your kids. So how do you know if you are or your church is beginning to assume the gospel? Let me give you some diagnostic questions. Here we are. Is the gospel in every sermon every weekend? If you attend here, it is. Every weekend you hear the gospel. By the way, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's A to Z. You don't go beyond the gospel. You go deeper into the gospel. So you need to understand the gospel. The gospel reaches seekers and builds believers in the same service. That's why you need to hear the gospel. You need to go to a church. And by the way, churches fall and pray to pragmatism and consumerism and how-to and self-help kind of messages without ever talking about the gospel. There are even churches in the valley that do altar calls without presenting the gospel. That's insane. What are these guys accepting? What are they receiving? What are they going to the altar for? That doesn't make any sense to me. And that's, you can see that in the statistics of our culture. And, and so the church has become not very gospel-centered. And, um, and so is the gospel in every sermon, every weekend? Could unbelievers hear the sermon and come to a real faith in Christ? Are gospel principles governing the church, the life of the church and its members? Do people hear the gospel in your prayers? When you pray, do you pray the gospel? You should pray that gospel. I mean, I was, uh, my grandson called me a Jesus freak. And I got him and gave him a noogie. And I said, that's right, I'm a Jesus freak, and your grandma is too. And we're going to make you into a Jesus freak. Because when we're with our kids, man, our grandkids, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. We tell them about the gospel. We tell them about Jesus. We're excited about Jesus. And so he's like, well, you guys are Jesus freaks. And, uh, and I go, that's a compliment. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so it's in our prayers. Do they hear it in our prayers? Do they hear it when we talk to them? Do you regularly share and talk about the gospel? You've got to with your kids. Your kids have to hear it over and over and over and over again. You need to hear it over and over and over again every weekend. I need to be reminded of it because I, I suffer from gospel amnesia. I forget what I have in him. I, I, mean, I, I, I know it's hard to believe that I would actually behave in a way that would be inconsistent with the gospel, but I do. And then I go, oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why am I feeling that? That's not consistent with someone who knows Christ. So I have to go back to the scripture and go back to God. And so he re refreshes me with the gospel. 
Do people hear the gospel in your prayers? Do you regularly share and talk about the gospel? Can people see the gospel lived out in your life? Romans 8, Romans 1, 16. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, turn hatred into love, bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace like the gospel. Like the gospel. Okay, so what happens when we do listen? So that's the kind of the consequences as we talked about. What happens when we don't? What happens when we do? Oh my goodness, this is beautiful. This is out of this world. Look at verses four through seven. He begins to spell it out for us. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. That's God's heart for us, life and peace. I'm going to be in covenant with you. And it's for life and peace and the fear of me. And it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. That's what it means to fear God. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So here's the next one on your notes. Return to your covenant with God. Return to your covenant with God. I love the uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible for children uh, defines covenant like this. Covenant love, the covenant love of God to us is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. It's how God loves us. Return to his love. And by the way, it's not our repentance that brings his covenant love. It's his covenant love that brings our repentance Here's the second thing. When you return to his covenant love, you will experience life, peace, and the fear of the Lord. There's plenty of verses there for you to study on that more. But let me just say this, that there is a a life and a peace and an awe and wonder of who Christ is and what he's done for you that will ruin you for anything else in life that you can only find in him. There is a life that is only found in him. There is a peace that's only found in him. Yeah, there's substitutes, but they don't even measure up to what we have in him. And to be in awe and wonder, that's the fear of the Lord, to be captivated by his beauty and glory. And so you will experience life, peace, and the fear of the Lord. Here's the next one. True instruction will be in your mouth and turn many from iniquity. Do you know how to turn people away from sin? Here's the best way to turn people away from sin, by helping them to be so happy in Christ that sin loses its appeal. So you begin to stir up their appetite for Christ and they won't want to chase after sin because they're going to want more of him. So true instruction will be in your mouth and turn many from iniquity. Here's the last one. You will walk with God in peace and uprightness. The word uprightness that he uses there in verse 6 literally means equity or justice. And so you'll be the kind of people, when you understand that you have peace with God, you're going to have the peace of God guarding your heart and mind, and you will want to bring peace in the community through social justice, is what he's saying. 
And you'll be someone who is concerned about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. You'll be someone who is concerned about all injustice, especially injustice toward God. So next weekend, be faithful to him is what we'll talk about, Malachi 2, 10 through 17. We're gonna spend two weeks on that section because we're gonna talk about dating, mate selection, sex, and marriage. Some of you just woke up right when I said that. Sex? Some of you will be sitting right on the front row. I got to hear this. That's what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks. We'll spend two weeks on all of that. And we'll talk about singleness and marriage and all that. Let me pray. So, Father God, we are amazed and in all that you, the God of the galaxies, invites us into a relationship with you that involves a true dialogue, a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth, only made possible through the indispensable, costly blood of Christ our Savior. Help us to listen to you more attentively, take your word to heart more affectionately, and honor your name more contagiously so that we can experience life, peace, and a healthy fear, a joyful awe and wonder of you. May true instruction be in our mouths, as we turn many from iniquity and walk with you in peace and justice, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.